You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Left After Breakfast. I'm Judith Peppard hosting the show for Susanna Duffy and her team, who will be back next week. Big thanks to Beyond Zero Emissions, as always. It's May 15th. Since midnight Tuesday, we've been able to have five people, friends and family members, in our homes. But we're all still being urged to be careful. There has been anticipation about recovery from COVID-19 and also the need to make climate change essential to that recovery. So today on Left After Breakfast, Anna Starbeck, CEO of Climate Works at Monash University, is going to join us to talk about why it makes no economic sense to ignore climate change in the recovery from COVID-19. That's coming up at 9.45. Before that, Fiona Armstrong from the Climate and Health Alliance explains how disregard for the environment leads to the rise of new pandemics. At 9.15, we're going to hear how our nearest neighbour, Indonesia, well, part of Indonesia, is faring with COVID-19. Sharon Bessel has been doing research in South Sulawesi, and she joins us to discuss what she's found. But first up this morning, I'm speaking with Dr. Timothy Jones from La Trobe University about the redacted sections of the report of the Commission into the Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. Before we go to that interview, if you feel you'd rather not listen or the interview might upset you, it goes for about 10 minutes. If you do listen and find you need to speak with someone, here's some numbers you can call, and I'll repeat them at the end of the interview. Lifeline 13 11 14, Beyond Blue 1300 224 636, and Kids Line 1800 55 one eight hundred. So those are numbers to call if the interview raises any issues for you. Now you may not be aware that when the report of the Commission into the Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse was released in December 2017, large sections of three volumes of that report were blacked out, redacted, so they wouldn't prejudice ongoing or forthcoming criminal proceedings Dr. Timothy Jones is a senior lecturer in history at La Trobe University. He's examined the redacted sections of the report, and he's written about it for the conversation. He spoke with me on Monday, and I began by asking Tim what the redacted sections of the report dealt with. Like, what did they contain? The redaction sections of the report um, are really very extensive. So of the three volumes, I counted the pages of the first volume and fully uh, over a third of the pages uh, of the first volume that was released had either the whole page or sections of the page redacted. Most of that was any reference to Cardinal Pell. Pell was a significant witness for two case studies and for the final report on the volume of the report on the Catholic Church. So every reference to Pell was redacted. The most significant sections of the redactions relating to Pell relate to his knowledge of sexual offending in his various roles when he had management duties from uh, his time in Ballarat to his time in Melbourne. What were those management duties? So in 1973, he was appointed as a consultant to the Archbishop and advisor with responsibility for education. 
So he had oversight of Catholic education in the Diocese of Ballarat. And as we know, tragically, schools were a major site of sexual offending. St. Patrick's in Ballarat was one of the worst sites in Australia of sexual offending. In addition, Gerald Reedsdale, the former priest, was also located in Ballarat and offended against schoolchildren there. He's in jail now. Yes, Reedsdale has been convicted of innumerable offences. Uh, I don't think anybody knows how many offences Reedsdale committed. He gave evidence to the Royal Commission live-streamed from jail, and that was quite a, quite a harrowing experience to, to watch that evidence. So that was in the Diocese of Ballarat? And then Cardinal Pell moved on to Melbourne. Yes, so in 1987, uh, Pell was appointed an auxiliary or assistant bishop in Melbourne. He was in a senior management position reporting to the Archbishop of Melbourne. And whilst he was responsible for a section of Melbourne, he had oversight of priests in that area and received reports, allegations that priests were sexually offending against children. So he would have been privy to that information and he didn't act on that information. Yes. So the reports of the Royal Commission are massive. The three reports uh, that are affected by these redactions are about 2,000 pages and they're very, very careful, methodical investigations of uh, who knew what at what moment in time. And they very clearly demonstrate that from the very beginning of Pearl's time with management responsibilities in 1973, he was aware, he could not have been unaware that there were allegations of priests and and brothers, people in monastic orders, offending against children. The Victorian police announced in June 2017 that they were going to be laying charges. So what happened to the Cardinal Pell case after that? Six months before the Royal Commission report was released, the Victorian police announced they were going to be laying charges against Pell. That is why every reference to Pell in the reports was redacted until last week. They proceeded with about half of the charges and then through the course of the trials, about half of those charges were withdrawn. They were judged not to be enough evidence. The main uh, accuser died or was judged to be unfit to give evidence. So they only proceeded with a fraction of the charges that they commenced with. Pell was found guilty of five counts of abuse during his time in Melbourne in St. Patrick's Cathedral. Those charges were upheld in the, on appeal to the Victorian Supreme Court, but Pell was acquitted in the High Court earlier this year. And after that acquittal, Cardinal Pell spoke publicly. He was asked about the redacted sections of the report. He didn't think there was much to see in those redacted sections of the report. He said he didn't think that they would have anything bad to say about him. And after they were released, he's expressed a disagreement with the interpretation of the commissioners of his evidence. And how did the commissioners respond to Cardinal Pell's evidence? The commissioners are really scathing of Pell. They don't suggest at any point that Pell lied. At certain points, they uh, accept his view of things. At certain points, they find that people who've made accusations or evidence that's unflattering to Pell have misremembered. There's one prominent case where one of the witnesses claimed to have heard Pell talking about abuse in Ballarat and looking at the evidence of the diaries and they weren't satisfied that Pell said the words that were remembered. Perhaps someone else had said them and they'd been conflated. I mean, this, this is the problem with historical sex abuse is that if you're talking about events that are 20, 30, 40, 
years ago, memory can get tangled up and it's, it's very, very difficult to get convictions for historical offences. On minor details, they agree with Powell's interpretation of events, but on the whole, they're scathing of him. The redacted sections of the report read as a methodical, careful evaluation of the evidence of what Pell would have known. They almost go as far as to say, Pell doesn't recall knowing anything, and they suggest that it would have been impossible for him not to have known about these offences. They further say uh, it was his responsibility as vicar for education and as a bishop to care for the children under his responsibility, and he didn't do so have been impossible for him not to have known about allegations of sexual abuse uh, and he did nothing about it. Uh, It was his duty to care for these children and he didn't do it. At some level, it must be a relief for many that the full report is now available. There's no new evidence uh, in the report. What is new is the Commissioner's uh, interpretation of that evidence. But none of that will be surprising to uh, victims, survivors, their families and supporters. But it will will be a relief for those blank sections of the pages, blacked out sections of the pages, to be made known and made open. For such extensive sections of the report, a third of the reports on the Catholic Church being blacked out, just the fact that they're no longer blacked out, that the evidence is open, that the Commission's interpretation of that evidence has been made public, will be some relief. Dr. Timothy Jones from La Trobe University, and Tim is well known to listeners here at 3CR for his research on the history of the LGBT conversion therapy movement in Australia, and also research on the Christian right. And if you need someone to speak to after that interview, here are some numbers you can call. Lifeline, 13 11 14. Beyond Blue, 1300 224 636 and Kids Line 1800 551800. You're on 3CR Community Radio Station 855 on your dial and streaming live. The show is Left After Breakfast. Here's Uncle Archie Roach with Let Love Rule. Overcomes us And we cannot find our way Although we keep on searching For the light of day And we hear the children crying And we don't know what to do Gotta hold on to each other And love will see us through Let love Let it guide us through the night That we may stay together And keep our spirits calm Only fools Will shine the morning That will keep us safe from 
hand Oh, I cover up my ears So I cannot hear The voices of hate And the voices of fear And I cover up my eyes So I cannot see What's happened to this country That used to be free country every rock and every tree the grasslands and the desert the rivers and the sea now you know I love the people wherever they are from yes I love all the people who call this land is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A 
proud 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Community Radio Station. I'm Judith Peppard hosting the show for Susanna Duffy. Now, over the past month, I've been wondering how our neighbours to the north of Australia have been managing during the pandemic. The region is diverse, of course, and experiences will vary greatly. Professor Sharon Bessel conducted a study of poverty in South Sulawesi in Indonesia in 2018. The study showed how poverty affects people's ability to take up practices to prevent the spread of a virus. But first of all, I asked Sharon Bessel to describe South Sulawesi for people who haven't been there. South Sulawesi is incredibly beautiful and incredibly diverse. It ranges from the sea to rugged mountains and everything in between. And it's a place like much of Indonesia where people are incredibly friendly and incredibly hospitable. South Sulawesi is also a place where we still see deep and entrenched poverty. It is often described as the gateway to eastern Indonesia, and it's eastern Indonesia that still experiences the deepest poverty within the country. What areas are included in eastern uh, Indonesia? What provinces? West Timor um, and Flores, Lombok. So there are some incredibly beautiful places in eastern Indonesia. South Sulawesi is an island province west of eastern Indonesia. Tell me about the research you did there. This study is part of a much broader program. We're developing a new way of measuring multidimensional poverty. And there are a couple of things that are important and distinct about what we're doing. We are measuring poverty at the individual level, not at the household level. A lot of measurements of poverty measure at the household and assume that resources are shared the same amongst all members of the house. And of course, we know that's not the case. And gender really matters, particularly in Indonesia and many other places, in terms of the way resources within the household are shared. We measure material things that you might expect, like access to water, to sanitation and to toilets, education and healthcare services. But we also measure things like whether or not people are able to make decisions about their own lives in relation to education or seeking work or visiting friends, spending money. We measure the nature of relationships and whether people have support or are dependent. And we measure for women, and I think this is really important, and this is where our measure is sensitive to gender, we measure things like whether women who have had children have had access to prenatal care and whether or not women have had access to sanitary products during their last period. And this is something that's almost never considered in measures of poverty. But for women, this really matters. If you don't have access to sanitary products, that determines whether you can go to school, whether you can go to work, whether you can go out in public. So we have designed this measure to be sensitive to gender and to particularly be sensitive to the things that really matter to women. We developed the dimensions after a very lengthy and extensive process of participatory research with people living in poverty in six countries. What we've aimed for this measure to do is to respond to the things that really matter to people who are experiencing poverty and to provide information to policymakers, to people designing programs and services to address poverty, to do something. Measuring poverty doesn't matter unless we then act. Yes, I'm really impressed with the detail, the fact that you've looked at intimate matters in designing this measure of multidimensional poverty. You've applied it now 
in South Sulawesi. Why South Sulawesi? We worked in Indonesia in part because Indonesia is one of Australia's nearest neighbours. Australia has a very strong relationship with Indonesia and the Australian National University, where I am, has very strong links into Indonesia. We worked in South Sulawesi because there was such strong interest in that province. We did a lot of work engaging with local government, with community organisations, and we could see there was a, a real desire to know more about the nature of poverty so that decisions about how to address poverty, how to eliminate poverty, could be informed by data and by evidence because of the opportunity for the research to then be used that we chose those particular locations. What did you find when you did your research? What did you learn? The first thing that we learned is the value of the approach that we're taking. By measuring multidimensional poverty, we gain a far more nuanced set of insights into what poverty means for people's lives. And Judith, you said that we seem to be taking an approach that is intimate. This is such an intimate issue. Poverty shapes people's lives, it constrains people's lives, and in many cases it destroys people's lives. It is one of the most intimate experiences people can have. And so what we saw when we did this study was the way in which some of those things play out, particularly the difference that geographic location makes. In the areas that we work, there are lowland areas, there are mountains, there are rural and urban areas. There are also islands that are very remote. In some cases, it took 20 hours by boat to get to the, the small islands. That's incredible, 20 hours. There are islands that are often missed in surveys of poverty because they are so remote. And one of the things that we were asked by local government officials was whether we could go to these islands because they need the data from those places. And what we found is just how deep the deprivation is. Food security, access to water, access to work in terms of shelter. The first important step is to actually understand the nature of multidimensional poverty so that decision makers and governments can begin to form programs that will support those people. One of the things I think about as you're speaking is we have this kind of idyllic idea of the remote island and an area that's kind of clean, pristine, people live a healthy life. That's not what you found. No, we didn't. There are very positive things. But in terms of basic services, access to healthcare services, access to education, which are so important in the contemporary world, remoteness means real challenge. The lack of infrastructure, the poverty means the possibility of connecting through, through the internet, using Zoom or Skype and the things that we've all been doing while we've been in lockdown over the past weeks is not a possibility for people where there is no internet access. There's deprivation in relation to basic services, but there's also, there are real challenges of connectivity. If you've just joined us, I'm speaking with Professor Sharon Bessel about a study she did in South Sulawesi in Indonesia. And she's drawing on data from one district where over 2,800 women and men over the age of 16 were surveyed. I asked what her findings meant for COVID-19 prevention. The most basic advice that we have to protect ourselves from coronavirus is to wash hands frequently, to wash our hands with soap, to do that whenever we've been out and in contact with anything, and to maintain physical distancing. For people who are living in poverty, doing those 
basic things is often almost impossible. This was not only in the islands, but in many different parts of, of South Sulawesi, but particularly in urban areas. People don't have access to running water in their homes and yards. People who are experiencing deepest deprivation need to go out of their homes every day, sometimes more than once a day, in order to collect water either from a communal tap or to buy water. So when you're in that situation, you need to be very, very careful about how you use water because carrying it's heavy, buying it's expensive. You don't waste water washing your hands more than you have to. But importantly, you have to leave home in order to get water. For many people, soap is not available. Soap is expensive. And soap means that you have access to a place to buy it. The combination of a lack of access to soap and a lack of access to water makes people very vulnerable. The government of Indonesia is trying to address some of this by putting in place mobile hand washing and hand sanitising facilities. That's a really important initiative. And what the data that we've collected does is give some um, greater information about where those kinds of facilities are necessary. Yes, and it's not only water that you talk about in your paper, it's also ability to go to the toilet. Can you say something more about that? So about a quarter of our respondents, that's a lot, 25% of people said that they did not have access to toilet facilities in their own house or in their yard. Often people share toilet facilities, so facilities that are shared by a number of households or families. Um, In some cases, people use public toilets. In some places, people need to use private spaces, which are not actually toilets, but um, are all that's available. And so in a context of COVID-19, for the most basic function that we all need to do several times a day, people have to go out of their homes. But this also speaks to the nature of deprivation and and multidimensional poverty beyond the context of COVID-19. When you don't have a toilet in your own house or your own yard, that has real implications for the way you live your life, particularly for women and girls. There are safety issues around that, of needing to go out often at night to use public toilet facilities. Yeah, it's important information and uh, sometimes hard to to look at, I imagine. It is. The information that we have, as I say, provides deep and nuanced insights in sort of research talk. But in human terms, that means that we see just how deep poverty is. And that is hard to, to look at, but it's also important for us to look at because it's too easy for us to avert our eyes from the experiences. And some of the issues that we found, you know, about access to water, about access to toilet facilities in Indonesia, if we think of the experience of people in Australia who are homeless, exactly those issues are facing them every day. And that's something that we should not be averting our eyes from. Yes. Have there been any cases of COVID-19 in South Sulawesi at this stage? There have been a number of cases. There was a cluster in one district. So we do see real challenges in South Sulawesi, as in other parts of Indonesia and, and across the world. From the perspective of your study and what you've learned, what needs to happen in your view? I think there are two things that we need to think about coming out of our data. One is how we respond to COVID-19 in contexts of poverty and how we need to think differently about responses. We say we're all in this together. 
And in some ways we are, and in some ways we absolutely are not. The experience of lockdown, the experience of facing the threats and the dangers of COVID-19 to our health and to our family's health are very different for people who are living in poverty. And so messages that can be followed around hand washing and physical isolation when we're better off are things that people cannot do in contexts of poverty. So what do we do when in the short term, they're intervening with mobile hand washing facilities, thinking about the way in which urgent access to toilet facilities can be provided in communities where there are no private facilities. Longer term, we need to look at access to infrastructure, better infrastructure into poor communities, looking at who has access to basic facilities, who doesn't, looking at patterns of discrimination and where people's human rights to, you know, the most basic services are not fulfilled, how we address that within countries but globally. What we're seeing as a result of COVID-19 is the way in which inequality plays out and what that means for people's lives. Professor Sharon Bessel, Director of the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre at ANU. You're on 3CR. It's great to have you with us this morning here on Left After Breakfast. And coming up next, we'll be hearing from Fiona Armstrong from the Climate and Health Alliance. Very fitting on the day when the students are having an online uh, event to encourage us all to look after the environment. But first, uh, some music. Tu te 
comme un limite éclair à moins ça croit que la vie besoin mon cœur il sert mon cœur il pleure comme il pense sous les pilars où ça And that was Destin Maloya with Finale. Beautiful song. You're on 3CR. The show is Left After Breakfast. Now, this week, Tuesday evening, in fact, I spoke with Fiona Armstrong. She's the founder and executive director of the Climate and Health Alliance. And she'd written a paper entitled, Coronavirus is a Wake-Up Call. Our war with the environment is leading to pandemics. I asked why she and her colleagues, Anthony Capon and Roe McFarlane, decided to write the paper. We wanted to draw the links between the COVID-19 pandemic and the kind of twin crises of biodiversity loss and climate change. COVID-19 is exacerbated by both of those things and we thought it was very important to bring attention to this while acknowledging that COVID-19 is a public health crisis, was dramatic social and economic disruption. It's important to understand why it's come about, what its links are to those other issues, because whilst there's a lot of attention focused on the COVID-19 pandemic, it's important that we don't also lose sight of the underlying emergency of climate change and biodiversity loss. In your paper, you refer to the field of planetary health. What is it? Tony Capon, who's one of my co-authors, is a professor of planetary health. He was actually the first professor of planetary health in the world. And it's an expansion of the notion of public health. The official definition of planetary health is that it's about the health of human civilizations and the state of the natural systems on which it depends. Seeking to draw attention to the fact that as humans, we are really entirely dependent on natural systems for human health, clean air, soil, water, and that our behavior is impacting on the planet in a, a way that's initiated the description of a new geological era, the Anthropocene, pointing to the fact that we are now having such a dramatic impact on Earth systems that we are the major geological force. So planetary health is the field that's seeking to draw attention to this and to point to the fact that if we really want to create a strong foundation for human health and well-being, we need to think about these broader systems and making sure that we're tackling those issues if we are to protect and improve public health going forward. In your paper, you say that COVID-19 
is a crisis of our own making. Partly this is about our excessive consumption of natural resources, which we're using at rates faster than they can be replaced. And partly because some of that behaviour involves producing greenhouse gases. In relation to COVID-19, it's through land use change, clearing land for farming or for urban settlements. So that leads to habitat loss. And when we force other animals out of their own habitat, so when we're damaging habitat or we're removing habitat, we're exposing animals to diseases that they may not have previously encountered. And we're bringing them in much closer proximity to us. So it makes it easier for diseases to jump from animals to humans. Zoonotic diseases. Really, zoonotic diseases are just diseases that jump from animals to humans. Around 70% of all new infectious diseases are now zoonotic. And can you give me some examples? Hendra virus that we're familiar with in Australia. Well, Ebola is another, in its origin, jump from another species to humans. What I'm finding interesting is that while a lot of focus has been on China, these kinds of diseases have arisen in Australia and in Africa. So that would suggest there is a need for a broader look at what's going on. Absolutely. And that's why infectious disease experts around the world have been warning of exactly this kind of pandemic for many years. And that the likelihood of a disease that would emerge that would be very infectious, for which we would have no immunity, that would spread very rapidly throughout the population. And because we're all globally interconnected, rapidly spread across the world and have a very dramatic impact. As COVID-19 has had, this is not what's sometimes described as a black swan event, which is unexpected and, and couldn't be predicted. Experts are saying that's not the case with this disease. It has been predicted. It's entirely expected. But what we didn't know is exactly when it would occur, where it would arise and how it would be transmitted or exactly what kind of effect it would have. I'm speaking with Fiona Armstrong from the Climate and Health Alliance. And I asked Fiona about other health problems brought about by climate change. Extreme weather, I think, is the one that people would relate to most readily. The unprecedented and catastrophic bushfires that occurred in the most recent summer of 2019 and 2020 in Australia that caught the attention of the world has a very dramatic impact through the exposure to the extreme danger that's posed by a raging bushfire, but also indirectly through that loss of livelihood. People are displaced from their home. They experience post-traumatic stress, very dangerous levels of air pollution, which for people who already have respiratory illnesses make those worse, but it um, can cause respiratory distress among people who were previously well. We've seen floods in Australia, which have caused harm and injury and death in the immediate aftermath or during the event itself, but can also lead to the spread of disease through contaminated water. Heat waves is another one that people experience in Australia and heat waves are the natural disaster that kill people in Australia more than any other natural disaster. And with rising global temperatures, we're seeing more and more of those with significant economic losses from productivity, around $7 billion per annum in Australia. So there's multiple ways in which climate change impacts on people's health. It tends to amplify all other existing health threats. It impacts people who are already disadvantaged and can worsen poverty and health outcomes. It causes people to migrate. 
They might have crop failure through the successive droughts for those people in Pacific Islands, for example, when their land is inundated and they may no longer be able to produce food. There's a lot of cultural and social impacts associated with that. One of the foundations for health and well-being for people who have connections to land over many centuries, that's a foundational part of their health. So Fiona, what do you see needs to happen here? Coming out of the COVID-19 crisis, I think it's really important that we see an investment in public health systems, recognising those foundational connections between the health of our ecosystems, the natural world, and the notion of planetary health, and recognise that our stewardship of Earth systems is going to dictate the type of future that we can predict. If we want to prevent further pandemics, we have to alter that behaviour. One of the ways in which we can do that is to act urgently to reduce the drivers of climate change and the biodiversity crisis. So we need to reduce our emissions and change our behaviour so that we're not consuming natural resources beyond the rate at which they can be replaced. There's no such thing as infinite growth on a finite planet. So we need to learn to live within our limits and we need to make sure that the investments that we make coming out of the COVID-19 crisis are going to help our economies reset a course for a a healthier and more regenerative society and economy. We'd love 3CR listeners to visit our website to sign up to our campaigns. We've been campaigning for for a really comprehensive response to the health impacts of climate change. Fiona Armstrong, founder and executive director of the Climate and Health Alliance. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. You are on 3CR and the show is left after breakfast. This morning we've looked at the importance of changing the way we use the finite resources of the Earth as we transition out of COVID-19. My next guest shares her ideas about how that can be done. Anna Scarbeck has been the CEO of Climate Works at Monash University since its inception in 2009. She's also a director of the Centre for New Energy Technologies, the Green Building Council Australia, and Sustainable Australia Fund. She's previously served on the board of Amnesty International Australia and was the director of the Big Issue Australia. Last Friday, she published a paper on why it doesn't make economic sense to ignore climate change in our recovery from the pandemic. I asked if she was seeing any indications that climate change would be ignored in our recovery from the pandemic. In the rush to reopen the economy and try and minimise the damage that's been done by the shutdown, economic damage, the natural human instinct is to quickly reopen and restore what was there before. But what was there before was not on a course that was sustainable. My team have been involved in many, many reports, as has CSIRO and others, that that highlighted that Australia was on a slow drift to decline with economic productivity, with regional urban cohesion, as well as environmental sustainability. The danger in pressing restore on what was there before is that what was there before needed changing anyway. In your paper, you describe climate action as a vital protection 
against further global shocks. Why is that? There is plenty of evidence that climate change and global warming on the current path will inflict significant physical and economic shock to our society and economies. That has been well documented and we have an opportunity in the next decade to turn emissions around and minimise the damage that would be inflicted by those shocks. So it's really a bad news, like that trajectory that we're heading towards at the moment. Is there any good news at all? The good news is nature can restore itself when given the chance. We've seen short-term evidence of that right now. The air is cleaner, waterways are clearer, birdsong is returning in some places. The other good news is that we have already invented the technology that can eliminate the carbon emissions that are causing and that would cause that future damage. So the real challenge then is to install those technologies in the remaining time we have before the emissions we've created reach such a volume that they tip over those temperature limits that the climate science in the Paris Agreement says we must avoid. You've also said that if we limit global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade, there will be a boost to the economy. I found that quite interesting. A large part of that boost is the avoidance of the damage that higher temperature rise would cause. That damage has been quantified and it's huge. The boost to the economy, if we keep global warming to 1.5 degrees and and wouldn't it be nice to even get it lower than that but for that it would be like 616 trillion us dollars compared to doing nothing that's the global study from nature communications and it's a global study that looks across this century that's quite long time frame but the point is still that boost that you're you're measuring there with is the mirror image of the damage we face if we don't change the course we're on right now. So that damage comes from costs to the economy from cyclones, from floods, from droughts, from food shortages, from disrupted supply chains, higher insurance premiums, and in the case of some insurance, some sectors, removal of insurance, complete failure of insurance. That's before we start to quantify biodiversity damage and species loss. So what we are able to quantify is reduced food production and reduced economic activity in heatwaves when outside workers just physically cannot work in the middle of the day. A new study from McKinsey has recently quantified that in areas of India, looking at Florida, whether you can get a mortgage in Florida under global warming. So that economic damage has been, has been extensively measured. And this benefit of staying under those warming limits is the benefit of avoiding that damage. And business leaders are actually calling for the stimulus funds to be invested in the economy of the future. What do they mean by economy of the future? Like, What does that look like? In short, you could call it a cleaner, healthier economy. When we describe what does it look like, there is, in fact, a dialogue about a much broader definition of the economy of the future, one that looks at social equity, and other factors. My team have studied the emissions side and environmental impacts. And when we describe the future economy, we talk about a zero emissions economy, net zero emissions. And that economy, in one sense, isn't that different to today's. It's actually life as we know it, in the sense that we fly planes, we drive cars, we live in houses like we have today, we we work in office buildings like we have today, and we manufacture and we, and we have mining. But 
all of those activities are powered with energy that doesn't create emissions and with materials that don't produce emissions when you make them. Yeah. So when we describe it, some people think that it might be a radically different place. And actually, when we're talking about removing emissions from the economy, that's all that we're doing. We don't need to change the economy in a major way. We would still produce food and, and have retail and have travel and tourism and education and home construction. But we would power all of that with renewable energy instead of fossil fuel power. We would make steel with hydrogen instead of coking coal. We would build buildings sometimes even without steel and we would use cross-laminated timber instead, for example. We would produce food with less fertiliser and more nature-based farming that didn't need so much inputs that created emissions. But the economy and life as we know it actually need not look that different provided we power it and supply it with materials that are zero emissions. And what our research shows is that is possible with technologies that are already invented. That's encouraging. So who are the business leaders then that are kind of getting behind renewable resources, shall we say? There are many, and there's different definitions of getting behind it. There are many businesses who recognise that, in fact, it's a collective effort to avoid the worst climate change damage. There are many companies who will join a global call for greater action, and they recognise that when everyone acts, everyone benefits. It's sometimes harder for those same companies to act alone and go first, but many have. Microsoft, for example, was one of the companies that has signed Europe's Green Recovery Platform, which is one of those documents that was published in the last uh, few weeks, calling for the economic recovery from the pandemic, the stimulus measures, to be aligned with green recovery investments. Microsoft has not only joined that call, but has made a net zero emissions commitment for its whole company that will balance out all the emissions that Microsoft has ever made in its history, as well as its current emissions, and decarbonise its operations through renewable electricity and carbon offsets, nature-based plantations. So there are some companies that are doing both joining the global calls and investing themselves. Other companies that, that joined Global Statements this week included Rio Tinto, BP and Shell that would be well known to your listeners as fossil fuel companies. And they acknowledge that energy must transition away from fossil fuels. So they're not there yet themselves, but they have acknowledged that the long-term goal is to get there by 2050. That's three decades from now. And what matters is how quickly in those three decades. It needs to look like a triangle and not like a square. Emissions must halve this decade and halve again the next. Once the emissions are in the atmosphere, it stays there and it acts as that blanket that warms the planet. The warming is locked in. So what matters is to make sure that there is less and less being added each year because it stays there. So that's why the shape of the reduction urgently needs to turn around in this next decade and emissions need to halve worldwide in the next 10 years when currently they're still rising. I'm speaking with Anna Scarbeck, CEO of Climate Works at Monash. And Anna does see some positives, some movement in the right direction. There are some actions that are in the right direction. There's a really exciting new national hydrogen strategy and the Australian government has, has backed that strategy with new funding to help stimulate investment in hydrogen development. And hydrogen is a gas that can be made from renewable electricity. It can also be made from fossil fuels. 
But Australia's chief scientist says if you are making it from fossil fuels, you can capture the emissions from the fossil fuels when you're making the hydrogen. And hydrogen can then replace oil in transport and shipping and can replace LNG, liquefied natural gas, which creates methane emissions, empowering energy supplies in other countries like Japan and Korea that buy our LNG. So it's really encouraging to see the Australian government and the state governments jointly backing a hydrogen future for not just Australia, but for the world. There are uh, lots of examples in the renewable electricity field. Most state governments have substantial renewable energy targets. The federal government has the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which lends money to support clean energy, ARENA, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. So there is quite a lot of support for renewable electricity and that support needs to continue now to carry out the infrastructure support such as transmission and connections that are needed to make sure we can build three times as much renewable electricity as we've currently got in the next 10 years. There are other sectors that need more support. Decarbonising our economy is not just a story of electricity or even energy where hydrogen comes in. It's also a story in buildings, in industry and in transport and agriculture. And our research covers all of those sectors. And renewable electricity helps a lot in decarbonising transport for cars, but we haven't yet got the infrastructure to support sophisticated charging for electric vehicles. And we haven't yet moved our freight trucks and larger long-haul vehicles onto electricity or hydrogen fuel cells. So there's quite a lot more that's needed in transport. Some states are supporting electric buses, but it's not yet widespread. And then in agriculture, there's support that's needed both for equipment to replace diesel-run equipment uh, with solar and batteries, but also to support nature-based on-farm carbon sequestration. So that includes investing in soil health, investing in carbon plantations, uh, which can be done integrated with farm, sort of the mosaic approach, and can also be dedicated plantation sites. So there's quite a lot of activity that's needed. And in buildings, renewable electricity can decarbonise the electricity we draw to power the building. But actually, what we also need to do is upgrade the equipment inside the buildings so that it uses less electricity in the first place. That technology is superb. Our research shows you can halve energy use in buildings by upgrading the equipment and the installation and managing the drafts, doing sensible building design and upgrading all of the appliances inside. And that will be needed so that we don't have to build as much new renewable electricity to replace the fossil fuel electricity. If we were having this conversation in 10 years' time, what would you like Australia to look like? Great question. Our emissions can be less than half of what they are today. What does that actually look like? When you look out onto a road, we should see more than half of all the cars being sold would be electric, hopefully three quarters by that time. At least three quarters of the electricity would be from renewable sources. And so I would hope that the regions that are currently supplying that coal-fired power would have received a great deal of community and government support for the workers there to branch out into other opportunities and for the infrastructure there to be utilised to supply clean energy and clean industry opportunities. We would, I hope, have a substantial hydrogen economy in development in 10 years' time, and that may well have begun to trigger what's called potentially the revitalisation of Australia's manufacturing 
along the lines of the clean energy superpower thesis that Ross Garner has been describing, that when we have large volumes of renewable electricity available to us, then we can use that electricity to do energy intensive manufacturing, including making metals. And so some of the commodities that we currently ship offshore, lithium and other things that we mine, including iron ore, we could actually keep onshore and add the value here because we would have access to large scale clean electricity that didn't produce emissions. And I think globally, the consumer sentiment will have shifted enormously in 10 years time. Think already about the protests from students on climate change. Companies like Apple have partnered with Alcan and Rio to try and produce zero emissions aluminium because they know that their consumers will want a zero carbon phone. The Meat and Livestock Association in Australia has already said that in 10 years' time, red meat production should be carbon neutral in Australia because Asian buyers will want clean green meat from Australia. And we could do that, but only if we invest now in supporting that industry to change. So they are reading the future from the market perspective and saying consumers will expect zero carbon options because they know that it's on its way and that we need to be ready for that. Qantas has already said that they expect by 2050 all their flying will need to be carbon neutral. So I think the consumers may move faster than governments. So companies are trying to catch up with that and make the investments that's needed. And the opportunity with the pandemic now is that governments could turbocharge that if the stimulus investments are aligned with that future economy. And that's what the government needs to do, I think, by, by the sound of it. And I guess the people who are listening need to pay attention to these things and to be contacting their governments and, uh, you know, and lobbying and uh, becoming knowledgeable about, about it as well. Yes, indeed. And we hope that the information on our website at ClimateWorks Australia can help increase that knowledge. Anna Scarbeck, CEO of ClimateWorks at Monash University. And that's it for Left After Breakfast today. A big thank you to all our guests, Tim Jones at the beginning of the show, Sharon Bessel, Fiona Armstrong, and Anna Scarbeck. Stay tuned to 3CR because Think Again's coming up next. And because we've been talking a lot about climate change on the show this morning, and as a shout-out to the students organizing the School Strike for Climate event this afternoon at 4 o'clock, it's called Build a Better Future, I'm going out with some of the sounds of the student strike here in Melbourne in September last year. We're going to march on together to Treasury Gardens, batting down Swanson Street, and we're going to make sure that the whole city and the whole world hears us, and we're going to tell them what we're going to do. Why would you not be here? It's, you know, there's lots of people who, for various reasons, can't, and we just uh, need to support the students and the. What, what else can you say? And what do you think of the crowd? I think it's quite amazing. I've been to lots of rallies before, and because I've got a bung knee, I come and sit at the side and watch it. I've been watching this one for half an hour now, and I still can't see the end. Oh, when we go on climate strike, 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 oh,
listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.